good to be with you, and happy post-Thanksgiving. It is Christmas season now. For, <clears throat> for, for some of you, it's been Christmas for months, but, uh, <laughs> but it's uh, appropriate Christmas time. Now, uh, you know, Christmas for our family was, uh, was good as always, lots of food, football, fun, and uh, we enjoyed it. And, but something this year that I was reflecting on was how much time and how much work goes into preparing for Thanksgiving. And, and many of you understand that. I'll give you a glimpse of our week. So, because it is literally a week long of hard work getting ready. And so Saturday, the, the Saturday before Thanksgiving, we go to the store and we just load up the cart and we get home and there is no room for food in the pantry. Like we have to set up a table in the kitchen for the excess food that we have to have for preparing for Thanksgiving. And so that will sit there for a few days. And then on Tuesday, we start to brine the turkey, which I still don't quite understand what brining the turkey is. I think you just like put it in a bag with like flavorful stuff, I guess. And then it just sits there and man, it tastes good on Thursday. So that's what, but we do that on Tuesday. And then this year we brought something back uh, that was a classic in our family, was noodles, homemade noodles. And we're not even Italian, you know? We're like making fresh homemade noodles. Now, uh, a few of our, including myself, uh, family members have become gluten-free, so that kind of cut the noodles for a couple years, but my mom made a, uh, found a recipe that has gluten-free noodles. And so we brought it back this year. It was awesome. So Tuesday and Wednesday, we're making homemade noodles. Ellie was helping. Uh, it was so fun to watch. And, uh, but then in, in all the midst of that, we're, we're, cook, we're, you know, we're baking pies and desserts. And then the day of, you're making casseroles and all the things. There's a whole lot of work that goes into Thanksgiving. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I never really appreciated that until I baked one time. There was... About eight years ago, I know, it, <laughs> indeed, yeah, eight years ago, uh, I, I wanted to be romantic. Sam and I were, were engaged, and I want to be romantic for Valentine's Day, and so I decided that I was going to bake her brownies. Now, I have never baked before in my entire life, completely clueless, so I, I just go on Google, and I find a recipe. I had no idea that you can go buy a box of like pre-mix that all you have to throw an egg in, water, and then put it in. Like, I had no idea. I was oblivious. So I go online and I'm buying like flour and eggs and cocoa and sugar and brown sugar, like all these ingredients. And I'm like, I'm going to knock this out of the park. Like I got this. Follow the directions. I get to my apartment and I'm just, it's a mess. There's like things on the wall. Uh, it's just... It, it's horrible. Things are stained that are, you know, I'm going to have to uh, pay extra for now because uh, I basically ruined the kitchen. And but the, long story short, I, I followed the directions. I put it in the oven. It smells good. It looks good. But then I like veer off and I see the thing of brown sugar. And it's, and it's still like sealed. And then it dawns on me, I was like, I bought that, but I didn't put that in the brownies. And so I'm looking at the instructions like, oh, yeah, he was right there. 
I missed that. So, there, so I had two thoughts. I was like, one, is it too late? Can I add it in now? Like, it's all just like, you know, a blob right now. You just throw it in and mix it together. We'll be good. The second thought I had was, does it really matter? Does it matter? Like, is it really going to be that big of a deal if it doesn't have brown sugar? Well, I bake it, and uh, I don't do anything. I just leave it. And uh, they, it comes out of the oven, smells great, looks great. They tasted terrible. And uh, it, basically, the brown sugar was like what makes it gooey. And it, they basically were bricks, and they were uneatable and horrible. And that was the last time I ever baked. Um, never did it again. What I learned from that experience is that no matter how you prepare, if you miss an ingredient, you will know you are missing something, and it will not go well. During this series, Preheating Christmas, our goal has been to intentionally prepare our hearts for the Christmas season. And as we prepare, I want to share that there is a part or, or an ingredient to the Christmas story that we often overlook. And it's so significant that if we removed it from the Christmas story, Jesus' birth doesn't quite make sense. That part, or should I say that person, is John the Baptist. So if you have your Bible or device, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 5 through 17 this morning. I'll be preaching from the ESV translation. Now, Matthew and Luke are the two Gospels that tell the Christmas story, but they tell it from two different points of views. Brett shared a few weeks ago, as he unpacked the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, that shows that Jesus is the Son of David, he is the Messiah, and, and it's through Joseph that God has had a plan from the very beginning. But in Luke's gospel, he writes his gospel from Mary's point of view. It's actually very likely that the first two chapters of Luke is attributed to stories directly from Mary. The reason why we think that is, one, Luke was, was uh, an investigator of eyewitnesses of the things of Jesus, and the details that we have in the first two chapters of Luke are details really only Mary would know. Uh, I'll give you some examples. We have the visitation from Gabriel um, to Mary. We also have Mary's visit to Elizabeth. Mary's song of praise. A story of a man named Simeon that Mary and Joseph and, and baby Jesus met at the temple. And then also, we, the only story that we have of Jesus as a child is in the first chapters of Luke. But are interweaved in these stories of Jesus are the origin story of John. There's not just one miraculous birth, but two. And it's so significant that Luke starts his gospel with John and not Jesus. And it makes you think, like, why, does, why did he do that? Why did he do that? And that's what we're going to explore this morning. 
This morning, we will look at three details of John's origin story that are significant for preparing for Christmas. We'll look at John's unlikely parents, his unexpected prophecy, and his unique purpose. So if you're with me, we're going to start in verse 5, but the first detail of John's story is his unlikely parents, and that is verses 5 through 7, if you're taking notes. It says this in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Luke begins the story by rooting John's parents in history. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, people at that time knew who King Herod was. He was a He was a puppet king for the Roman Empire who ruled over Judea, but really the whole region that he ruled, and he reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And he was a paranoid and belligerent ruler. Any person that he was suspect of them to take over the throne, he would kill them, even children. And we see that in Matthew chapter 2. Herod was a horrible king, but that is just a picture of what the days were like for the Israelites. They were an occupied people. It was dark days in the days of Herod. But there was a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, both likely descendants of Aaron. That's kind of the priestly line that comes through the Old Testament. And it says, it gives us a detail, and it says he was of the division of Abijah. Now, I've read, I've read Luke's gospel a handful of times, and that's usually a detail that you just kind of glance over and you really don't investigate it. But this detail is actually significant to the story, and it will come back later. So what does it mean, the division of Abijah? Well, something that David instituted all the way back in 1 Chronicles 24 was priestly divisions. Solomon was building the temple for the Lord, and David came up with the priestly divisions. Basically, this is what it was. 24,000 priests were divided into 24 divisions, basically 1,000 per division. And each division would rotate going to the temple to minister. And each division would go twice a year for one week each time. So basically, two weeks out of the year, they would go and minister at the temple. That way, it's not just one group of priests constantly ministering in Jerusalem. It was a rotation basis. It actually was quite brilliant. And so the division of Abijah was the eighth division, and that's the the division that Zechariah was a part of, him and a thousand other priests. And that detail will come back later. So not only do we learn that Zechariah is a priest— But he and his wife Elizabeth are both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Both were faithful. Faithful. They loved God and delighted in living according to his word. They were godly 
publicly and privately. They were a godly power couple. But there was one problem. It says that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. You see, at at this time in Jewish culture, barren women were viewed with disapproval. They assumed that someone in the relationship or both people sinned. And now they are being punished for their sin. And, And through that, there would be rumors and gossip and lies. And that's not true about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were godly people, but they were barren. And the barren woman would live in shame. But the people's disapproval was probably no match to the couple's disappointment. All the prayers asking for a child. Months would turn into years. Years into decades. And Elizabeth would be advanced in years, meaning she is now past childbearing years. But as hard as that must have been, they accepted her barrenness, trusted the Lord, and devoted their lives to him. See, verse 7 isn't supposed to be sad. It's actually supposed to be a setup for what God is about to do. When, when you hear that Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years, what does that remind you of? If you've read the Bible, if you've heard, heard the stories of the Bible, who does that remind you of? Abraham and Sarah, exactly right. Abraham and Sarah. Back in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah were also barren and advanced in years, 90 and 100 And God makes a covenant relationship with Abraham and promises they would have a son named Isaac. And through this son Isaac, all the promises of God that he's made to Abraham would come through the name, the nation, the land. Everything would come through this promise. And it happened. They had a son named Isaac. Luke here is hinting that God is about to do something like this again. Which links this story in Luke 1 with a consistent pattern in the Bible that God chooses unlikely people in unfortunate circumstances for his redemptive plan. It starts with Abraham and Sarah, but then after them, four more barren women come. You have Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, Samson's mother, who is not named, and Hannah, Samuel's mother, the prophet Samuel. And each of these women miraculously conceived, and their sons would play major parts in redemptive history. But it doesn't just happen with these ladies. Look at Jesus' genealogy. Look at the ladies that are in there. You have Rahab, who's a prostitute. Ruth, a foreign widow, and Mary, who is a teenager. 
unlikely people in unfortunate circumstances that God uses for his redemptive plan. And it's not just these ladies. You can look at all the scriptures, and there's tons of them over and over and over again. It's a pattern. Why does God do that? So that he can show his power and his glory to people. So that there's no question that God is at work. Because he's doing things only he can do. He's making the impossible possible. And so now you have a timeline, time stamps in history where God showed up. It's not man manipulating a story over time. No, God has done incredible things to move us forward into redemptive history to the time of Jesus. And God continues, even to this day, to use unlikely people in unfortunate circumstances for his kingdom work. Pattern doesn't stop. In Zechariah and Elizabeth's day, <clears throat> this would have been huge. Because like I said, it's in, in Herod's day, it was dark days. But also, in this time, there was a 400-year gap of silence. Malachi was the last prophet to prophesy. And 400 years later, they hadn't heard nothing. They haven't heard anything. And so it, if you're an Israelite and, you, and there's been no prophecy for 400 years, you'd be really tempted to think, God, have you forgotten us? The Romans have come. They, we are an occupied people now. God, send your Messiah. God, we need you. Are you hearing us? Where are you, God? Have you forgotten? And then God chooses an unlikely couple, a priest, wife who is barren, both advanced in years, whose names mean for Zechariah, God remembers. And Elizabeth's name means God's oath. When you put their names together, it means God remembers his oath. God hasn't forgotten. He's remembered his promises. And he chose this couple to show them that. So, what is God about to do? How is he going to show that he has remembered well, he's going to do it in a pretty unexpected way. The second detail of John's story is his unexpected prophecy. And this is going to be verses 8 through 17. We'll look at eight, uh, verses 8 through 10 here and unpack it a little bit. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. As stated earlier, Zechariah is of the division of Abijah. So what this is telling us is that his division was on duty. He was in Jerusalem. He was working at the temple. And he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and burn incense. Burning incense happened 
in the temple, in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, but the holy place. And this is where you would see the altar of incense, and you would burn incense after the morning and evening sacrifice. And this duty was chosen by casting lots, basically rolling dice. And to be chosen to burn incense was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. There's thousands of priests, and you go twice, twice a year, to once in a lifetime opportunity, and Zechariah is chosen. This is like the highlight of his priestly career. And so he goes, and, and during the hour of incense, the priests and the people would specifically pray for deliverance, they would pray for the Messiah to come. Lord, save us. These are dark days. Come, Lord, help us. And that's what's happening in the text. Then verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he, will, he, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now I imagine Zechariah had his eyes closed praying and then opened his eyes and there's an angel right next to the altar. Now I, I also imagine it's, it's similar to like when you're a parent and you are in bed, probably asleep for a little bit, and you just feel this presence. They might, this presence might whisper or something, and then you open your eyes, and they're like right there, you know? That's what, I, that's what it's like. It'll spook you. And, and uh, I'd imagine that's what it was like for Zechariah. He, he closed his eyes, and when he closed his eyes, there was nobody there. And he opened his eyes, there was somebody there. Something that he was not expecting at all. But this angel was not just any angel. From details provided later in the story, we know that this is the angel Gabriel. Gabriel shows up a few times in Scripture, one in the Old Testament with Daniel, and then later with Mary and Joseph. Again, Zechariah was not expecting this at all. What does Gabriel have to say to Zechariah? First thing he says, don't be afraid. But then he says, your prayer has been heard. Now, when I was reading the text, it's like, oh, the prayer for a child. That's how I, I read it first, but that's actually not likely what the prayer was. What more likely happened was the prayer that he just prayed at the altar of incense, the prayer for deliverance, the prayer for the Messiah to come. 
That's the prayer that he's referring to. And what Gabriel is saying is, is Zechariah, your prayer that you just prayed for the whole nation of Israel was heard in its time right now. And your family is going to play a big part in him coming. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And his name will be John. And he will be great and holy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, Zechariah wasn't expecting that either. And then Gabriel says something interesting in verse 16. He says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. What does that mean? If you read the Bible, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament about 800 years before this time. What is he talking about? Power, spirit power of Elijah. Well, as I mentioned, 400 years, there was uh, silence. And Malachi was the last prophet to prophesy anything. And the last prophecy that Malachi prophesied was a prophecy saying that Elijah would return before the Messiah comes. And that's Malachi 4, 5 through 6. It's literally, if you look at Malachi, it's the last verses in your Old Testament. Okay? So it says this in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, kind of put it this way. This prophecy was a messianic prerequisite for the Messiah to come. This had to happen first before the Messiah was to come. And so, because of this, Jews expected Elijah to literally return back in the day, but even still today, to this day, at Jewish seders. They include an empty chair at the table to symbolize uh, Elijah to come back for him to take the seat. Basically saying, we are ready for Elijah to come and to usher in the Messiah. They still do that today. And, and Jesus' disciples even had questions about this prophecy. Because they've they're, they're been doing ministry with Jesus. And at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah in glory. And Jesus was meeting. And they were like, what is happening? And then they had a question. They said, Rabbi, why do the scribes say Elijah is supposed to come first? And Jesus replied, with this in Matthew 17, verse 11 through 13. He says, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. What Jesus is saying is that John is 
the fulfillment of Malachi 4, 5 through 6, but not in the way that people expected. They expected for the literal Elijah to return, but instead God would send John as a spiritual Elijah. And this is important because the whole Christmas story hangs on this. If God didn't send John in the spirit and power of Elijah, then Jesus as the Messiah does not make sense. It would be a missing ingredient if this prophecy was not fulfilled. But it was fulfilled. And John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was the Elijah they were not expecting. But isn't that how... God works. He does things in unexpected ways. Even in the Christmas story, the people were expecting the Messiah to be a military king. They were not expecting the Messiah to be the Son of God, born of a virgin, live a perfect life, sacrifice himself on the cross for our sins, and raise from the dead. No one expected that. But God's plan was better than expected. Way better than expected. Many unexpected things happen in life. Good things, bad things. Things we don't have on our calendar that happen. Things when we reflect and we're like, I didn't expect my life to turn out this way. This wasn't a part of my plans. But when things in life don't go the way we expected, we can trust that God's plan is always better than expected. Always. Right now it might be scary. It might be hard. It might be confusing. But you can trust that his plan is greater. And you will see it, you know, before you're good here on earth, but especially in heaven. So what was God's plan for John? Like, we, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but like, what was the purpose of all that? Gabriel tells us in the last two verses of this section. So the third detail of John's story is his unique purpose, and that's Verses 16 through 17, these are verses we've already read, but we're going to zoom in because we see his purpose. He says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. As the story goes, Zechariah had questions after this unexpected prophecy. And Gabriel sensed some doubt in Zechariah. So he made Zechariah mute until John's birth. Elizabeth did conceive, and John was born, and Zechariah regained his voice after they named him John, which his name means God is gracious. So cool. John grew up. And this is where we see the similarities in Elijah 
and John. Like Elijah, John wore garments of hair and a leather belt. Like Elijah, John lived in the wilderness by the Jordan River. Like Elijah, John ate from the wilderness as God provided. His choice of food was locusts and honey. Ooh. Like Elijah, John preached to Israel to repent of their sins. And here's where we find John's unique purpose. The whole reason why God sent John. Every gospel highlights John's public ministry in the first few chapters of each gospel. And every single one of them quote an Old Testament passage, a prophecy. And it's Isaiah 40, verse 3. It says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What Isaiah was describing and prophesying is what's called a forerunner. Now in the east, when kings wanted to go on a journey, they would send a forerunner or a few forerunners to create a path for the king. They would smooth rough terrain, remove obstacles, build bridges, level hills, and clear forests to make the path straight for the king. You see what Isaiah prophesied, what the Gospels highlight, and what Gabriel echoes is that John's unique purpose was to be Jesus' forerunner. King Jesus sent John the Baptist as a prophet ahead of him to prepare his way. But he wasn't preparing the way to go to a place He was preparing the way to people's hearts. And the biggest obstacles were not rocks or valleys or rough terrain or trees. The biggest obstacle was sin. And John went to all the regions surrounding the Jordan River proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sin. And he told people, stop cutting down people with your tongue, with anger, gossip, and sarcasm. Instead, build others up. Stop digging holes of greed. Instead, fill your heart with generosity. Stop toiling with overworking. Instead, rest and be with your family. Stop falling into the trap of judging others. Instead, love others. Stop eating the bitter fruit of unforgiveness. Instead, forgive. Stop walking along the edge of adultery. Instead, walk the path of purity. Stop burning bridges. Instead, build bridges and reconcile with others. And how did the people respond? They flooded the river. It says thousands upon thousands of people came out to where John was. And and I'll tell you this, there were not lights, cameras. 
There wasn't anything flashy going on. There was no coffee. It was just a man, a dirty man, mind you, in dirty water. That's it. And people hungry for God. And God showed up. Literally. Because in the midst of a crowd, a man came forward. John sees this man. And how John says it is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus moves forward, and John's like, I'm not worthy. You need to baptize me. He says, no, John, this needs to be done. And John baptizes Jesus, not in repentance of sin, but to set an example. And as he goes and, and leaves, John says, oh, your hearts are prepared. You have removed the obstacles, the things that are keeping you from God. You've removed those things. Now go follow that man with all that you have. Forget about me, follow him. He's the one that leads to life. Follow him. He's the one that will pay for your sin. Follow that man. All that you have. Step by step. If John the Baptist were here this morning, as we were preparing for Christmas, what would he say? The same message that he gave 2,000 years ago. Repent and turn to Jesus and walk with him. Instead of concealing your sin, confess your sin. We have a habit in our day to stuff and hide sin. And all that's going to do is hurt you more and hurt others more. What is done in the dark will come to light. You're not supposed to hold on to that. And it says in Scripture that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus isn't condemning you. He wants to forgive you. And there is forgiveness. But even James says we confess our sins to others so that we can be healed. You may be confessing your sins to Jesus, but you're not confessing your sins to others. And you're walking around with a wounded heart. In order to be healed, you must confess your sins to the one that you sinned against. Or maybe just share with somebody the, what you're going through. Church, this is what we're supposed to do. This is supposed to be a safe place. And that is one of our core values. So I challenge you, talk to somebody. Bring it to light. And be free. Do not let the sun go down tonight without saying something. Instead of being comfortable with sin, reject it. We are very comfortable with sin. Oftentimes we are entertained by the things that Jesus died for. 
by the things that we watch, things that we listen to, and the things that we do. And we have to be careful. If we don't kill sin in our life, it will kill us. We must not be comfortable with it. We must reject it. Instead of being callous with sin, we must repent of it. We must turn away from it and choose to walk a different direction, a new way to live. And for John's disciples, they they got the repentance down, and there's even in the Gospels, there were people that followed John, but they missed Jesus. They didn't have the full gospel. And, And you and me can repent of sin and make adjustments in our lives and be good and still miss Jesus. Repent of your sin, turn away from it, and walk with the Lord. The Lord wants to take you deeper and deeper into his relationship with you. But you must repent and walk with him. I close with this. On Wednesday, February 8th at Asbury University, it's a small Christian school in Wilmore, Kentucky, about 1,600 students. There was a chapel service, which was common for, which is common for Christian universities. In that day, the chaplain was just tired. He had preached 20 times in six days. So the message that day was simple, short, sweet, kind of thrown together. And after chapel was done, everybody went on their way, went to class and went to lunch, except for a few students. There's one student in particular that was so moved by the Spirit. And it was just like, I have to say something. And he confessed his sins that he had been concealing to his friends. And they loved on him. And that gave them courage to confess as well. And they prayed with one another and they worshiped. And then word got out that this was happening and more students wanted to come. And students started flooding the auditorium. Students coming, also confessing sin and worshiping. And they kept doing that and it would not stop. They didn't want to stop. They wanted to keep going. And so days went by and they did not stop. And then the word got out to the world. And people all over the place wanted to come and see and be a part of what God was doing in this little town at this small school. And they came. This thing lasted for two weeks. By the time it was done, 70,000 people came to campus. This campus only has 1,600 people. And people came because they wanted to participate. God was moving. I want to experience him. I want to be right with him. I'm hungry for him. That's who I want. And they participated. But then there were others who came just to spectate. I want to see God move in other people's lives. 
I want to see what's happening. It's on social media. Like, I want to be there. And they go and they spectate. They do not participate. My challenge to you going into Christmas and in response to this message is that you would participate and not spectate. That you would be sensitive to the Spirit and that you would humble yourself to let the Spirit do whatever He wants to do in your life. And that you would go deeper with Jesus, deeper than you ever had before. But in order to do that, you have to repent. And you have to confess.